You are listening to Analyze Asia with Bernard Leung, the podcast dedicated to interview thought leaders and industry players to understand and dissect the pulse of technology, media, and business in Asia. The show is sponsored by Ideal Workspace, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. You can visit their website, idealworkspace.com. Hi, Ben. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? Uh, excellent. So You're in like Paris a, this time round, but most of the time, you're usually traveling all over the world. And uh, these days, I spend about half my time uh, in Shenzhen in particular. Yes, and we are all t- talking to Benjamin Joff, who have a very interesting history. I think you have been from China to Silicon mm. Valley, and I think you also covered a lot of companies in North Asia. Absolutely. So I, I worked uh, in Japan, in South Korea. I lived a bit in Singapore, Malaysia, Beijing, San Francisco, and uh, now back to China. To my understanding, a couple of uh, very well-known venture capitalists have spoken to me and they also partake interesting companies that you have invested in as well. So, But I think to talk about your story, how did you start and how did you land up in China and then started moving around the world as an angel investor and an entrepreneur as well? I'd say it's a story of curiosity and encounters, probably. Initially, I'm originally from France. When I graduated, I wasn't super excited about working in France or Europe. I had studied Japanese in in addition to engineering. I felt a lot more interested uh, about what was going on there. And I felt also I was more active than when I was not in France, than when I was in France. Went to Tokyo and uh, worked in Tokyo for a couple of years in consulting then a couple of years in telecom. Then mobile was booming at the time and found it was really interesting. That time I also discovered what was going on uh, in Korea around social networks and gaming. I'd say that kept me in the region and after Japan, I decided to move to Korea to see it like uh, more closely. After that, I got curious about China because being in Japan and Korea, everybody was talking about China, but very few seemed to really understand what was going on. After quitting my job in telecom, I started uh, to do some consulting work. Uh, mostly researching the Japanese and Korean markets. Then I realized I could ex- possibly expand that to China. So I went to Beijing and I was expecting to stay maybe six months and I stayed about six years. Ended up starting a consulting company, building a team with Japanese, Korean, Chinese consultants, starting a, an event called Mobile Monday in Beijing, which was an extension of the global Mobile Monday network that was connecting people in telecom and in mobile in particular. That got me closer to startups. So even though initially my consulting clients were mostly large companies, I increasingly uh, was working with startups and ended up doing some angel investment, doing advisory work. That was my entry to China and the the reason I stayed around in East Asia. Well, you produced three interesting reports through your consulting firm. And I think there was talking about Cywo, and I think if I'm not wrong, was Mixi and even Tencent before they IPO, right? Yeah, they were already IPO, but Tencent at the time was probably 2008 or nine. Very few people in outside China actually knew about the company, even though it was already a giant. I found that the business models and the services they had created or adapted from elsewhere were very interesting to study. In addition to our clients for whom we're doing custom work, we decided to publish some, uh, some research 
to get more visibility. It also gave more visibility to various Asian markets to show that there was innovation outside Silicon Valley. I knew about those reports and that was how I got to know you and they were highly cited by people who wanted to gain an entry understanding of the Chinese market. After the consulting part, you also done some angel investments as well. It were two companies that I know was Simune and yes. Gango. So what, yes. what's the story behind the angel investments? How do you get I to guess- become an angel investor? Everybody has a different story, but for me, it was feeling that I had some knowledge and expertise in the sector and finding a company that was really early stage where I liked the creators, I liked their vision. I felt I could maybe help them with understanding the market they were in, understanding how to build the company. Of course, when I look back, I probably made like tons of mistakes because I had some market knowledge that actually managed to help uh, some of those companies uh, raise money or get some visibility. Probably as an angel investor, unless you're extremely well connected, the first deals you're going to see are not going to be necessarily the most exciting. They're going to be exciting for you, but the professional investors will have all sorts of criteria that that you don't know about. I guess in my case, I've been fairly lucky to be uh, connected to good founders and people who have global ambitions. So I say my angle was to find Asian companies who were interested in being global most from day one. So Simeon is a gaming company based in Beijing, but the games that they publish are mostly played outside China. A couple of other companies based in Japan also have most of the users outside Japan. So one is Gengo, online translation platform. And another one is Tokyo Otaku Mode, which is an online community for, I'd say, anime and the Japanese, I'd say, otaku culture. And those are very successful right now. Then I have another probably like nine or ten investments in various sectors with various levels of success and maturity. So those are kind of my oldest investments. So obviously, they're more mature. And they have all raised Series A, right? I remember that Gengo also raised from 500 startups. Yes, so I met Gengo somewhat connected to Dave McClure as he was about to set up his 500 startups fund. So that was quite a few years ago. I really like what they were doing. Basically, I joined the first round alongside with Dave McClure. Tokyo Takamoto actually also met through 500 startups as I was in residence at the accelerator in Mountain View. Tokyo Takumode was a part of uh, one of the accelerator program and I met them and uh, I kind of befriended the guys and I realized that they had some really interesting plan and very resourceful team, which I think is really critical for, for success. I'd say throughout angel investments and research work and uh, advisory work, say my criteria, like I'd say, refinement for finding what's a suitable investment has evolved a lot, like understanding what's a new market versus an existing market, understanding the importance of distribution, the importance of uh, having a proper deal flow. All those things are now very useful for the the role I I have at uh, Accelerator. And then after that, you travel to Southeast Asia, was and you were in Singapore and Malaysia for a while before going to Silicon Valley and then back to Shenzhen. Yes. So what happened on that leak? I guess after a lot of consulting work, I got the itch uh, of uh, doing my own product. Of course, I had done so much research, I thought I had the best idea in the world. So I went first to Silicon Valley to test the idea and discuss with people. So there I actually joined the Founder Institute for a while. And then uh, when I felt I was ready to start building something, I went back to Southeast Asia uh, looking to build a team. And in Singapore, it was a bit difficult to find the right guys and to find price I could afford. And I moved to Malaysia, where I found really good guys. So I built the first product there, uh, launched it, realized it wasn't developing the way I wanted in terms of uh, traction. So I went back to Silicon Valley. That's when I was in residence at Family Startups to think it over and see whether I was on the right track. Because I was trying to follow the lean startup methodology, but I think I was quite lean on the product side. But... I hadn't understood really well at that time the, all the customer discovery approach. 
So I was probably building a service for a problem that most people didn't have, aside from myself and uh, very few. <laughs> mm -hmm. So when I realized that, I thought, okay, it's time to do something else. So I decided to uh, wrap up the project. I went back to Beijing to help Simeon for a while with building an analytics team and uh, doing a few other things on fundraising as well. And then I eventually came across a, a friend of mine who has been running an accelerator focused on hardware in Shenzhen. And uh, I visited, and then I, I had kind of epiphany. I was like, this is the exact right thing to do. It's the right place, it's the right time, it's the right angle, it's the right positioning. So after some discussions, uh, he offered me to join, and uh, that's what I've been doing for over a year now. And the hardware accelerator in Shenzhen is probably the most well-known outside China. Well, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, so what is the... Accelerator. Oh, it's Hackcelerator, but it has yeah. um, it is pronounced yeah, as H-A-X-L-R-8-R, so it's Hackcelerator. That's yes. the way to say uh, it. In short, we call it Hacks. What does Hackcelerator do? So Hackcelerator is an early stage investment company that has also a program with a lot of support to help hardware companies go from an early prototype to an actual business. What that means is that by coming to Shenzhen, uh, you have access to uh, incredible resources for components and the supply chain. So you can first make sure your strategy is sound then iterate really fast on your prototype until you have something ready to go into manufacturing. Then set up your own supply chain. And another aspect of what we do with uh, consumer companies is um, to help them launch a crowdfunding campaign. So, so far, uh, we've run, I think, 25 campaigns. I think about 20 of them uh, reached over $100,000 and a few of them over half a million dollars. So do you yes. fund them in Kickstarter or other crowdfunding uh, platforms? We fund them before the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter takes place at the end of the program for whom it makes sense. I mean, we've been recognized as the most active investor in crowdfunded hardware, but it's a bit of a misnomer because we actually fund the startups like months before they go to crowdfunding because we help them get ready for it. What's the size per round for these hardware startups? Are they uh, significantly more expensive to fund as compared to software startups? Not really. It depends on the stage, I would say. In our case, the amount we fund startups with is quite in line with what you find at other accelerators. Uh, we have two options, one at $25,000 for 6% in addition to the program, another option at $100,000 for 9%. Even if you just look at the, the cash aspect, it's a valuation at above a million dollars already. And the value is generally much more on the program side than on the, on the cash aspect. But what's interesting is that with such a small amount, you can already do a lot of work on the prototype enough to get something that's convincing enough and, and ready enough so that you can crowdfund. And the crowdfunding allows you to get money from customers, uh, which is the best source of capital. And then if you get enough market recognition, if you have a, a plan that's sound, if it makes sense for your company, go for another type of... Uh, of funding with uh, venture capital, for instance. If your crowdfunding goes really well, you're actually able to skip uh, a seed round entirely and go straight to either a Series A or just grow for your business. I was listening to Tony Fadell in one of TechCrunch Disrupt conferences and he made this really interesting comment and I thought maybe business were on the subject of hardware accelerator. Mm -hmm. So he, his view is that you can't build a company through Kickstarter and what he says is that every great hardware product actually goes through at least three rounds to get it right and hence you have to raise enough to get to the third iteration in order to build a company from your experience is that mm -hmm. really true what kind of interesting hardware companies have you all had fun through hacks i mean his perspective is is a guy who used to work at apple so yes and now running nest labs yes 
yeah, so it's used to have access to capital and used to do, it, to do things kind of a traditional way. Saying that you can't build a company through Kickstarter is a, or crowdfunding is really strange, considering that uh, Oculus got acquired for $2 billion in a record time. I agree, though, that there's not many examples of companies that were built through Kickstarter, but there have been dozens of them that raised venture capital after a successful campaign and a good plan. So what's also true is that it's not because you have a successful Kickstarter campaign that you are a startup that VCs would like to fund. The most successful crowdfunding campaign so far is a, a product called the Coolest Cooler, which is basically a smart cooler for your summer picnic. And they raised $13 million in Kickstarter, but I don't think any VC would really be so keen for funding them because they don't really have a lot of defensible technology. Aside, they mostly have a brand and a little bit of a head start on the market. What we found uh, through our program is that uh, not only we select companies we believe are proper startups in that sense that they have technology, they have a big plan, and they want to grow big. Uh, for us, crowdfunding is a tactic to go to market, get feedback, get capital. But it's not the strategy of the company. What we found is that uh, one, one of our companies uh, called Spark did really well with Kickstarter, about uh, half a million dollars. And then with that, they were in business. Uh, they started to sell units and uh, they were profitable. About a year after the crowdfunding campaign, they raised the Series A at uh, about $5 million. So for us, this is uh, an excellent example that you can get to market with very little. Like prior to the half a million they got from crowdfunding, they basically, basically had just funding from us. So it's, it's very little. So what does Spark and, uh, do? Spark is a smart chip to connect any IoT project to the cloud uh, with a secure cloud infrastructure. It's very popular now for a lot of like maker prototyping, but also some uh, are starting to create actual products that need a simple way to build connectivity uh, in a secure way. There's another also interesting perspective on hardware, which often people use it, I, I think is a myth, is that hardware mm -hmm. companies are easily commoditized and hence investing in them would yield bigger return as compared to software. What are your perspective in that myth? Is that really true? Or everybody thinks that it always goes in that direction? So it's true that the hardware part can be commoditized, uh, which is why in our case, when we look at a startup, we don't consider the hardware to be the key element. What we're looking for are companies that combine hardware, software, algorithms, ideally also a community of either users or developers. That's the more modern view of of a hardware company and uh, what's a kind of defensi defensible, intangible IP. So that is interesting. So you're, th you're saying that the current kind of when people talk about hardware is actually an algamation of hardware, software, and the kind of the network that connects to make the seamless user experience for the customer. Yeah, and I would say even it's not because you have connectivity on software that it's hard to do. Like just to give an example, there's a lot of e-cigarettes around these days. And there's already a number of connected e-cigarettes but creating such product is actually not that hard. A connected e-cigarette is not something difficult to do. You just need an app, you need Bluetooth, you need a battery, and a basic e-cig. So if, if that's the IP, of course it's not very defensible, which is why in our selection of startups, we tend to go for companies with uh, more complexity in software, more complexity in hardware, communities, and, uh, and things like that. So Hexcelerator is in Shenzhen, and we talk yes. about the Shenzhen phenomena. So that's the reason why 
I definitely must get you on here to talk about. How does it work in Shenzhen? What do hardware entrepreneurs need to think about when they travel to Shenzhen? Shenzhen is in China, just to help everybody with geography. Yeah, so Shenzhen is a, a big trading city, and manufacturing city, right next to Hong Kong in the south of China. What's really interesting about it is that uh, over the past uh, few decades, it turned from a, a very small village into a powerhouse for manufacturing of electronics. So you have basically the world's best supply chain and component market that are over there. So in terms of prototyping, in terms of manufacturing, it's, it's fantastic. What's interesting is that a few, until a few years ago, you could only work with factories if you were placing really large orders. So it was not possible for startups, or it was very difficult. But now, um, a lot of factories are actually quite interested in working with startups to create innovative products, to enhance their capabilities, and also because they see the perspective of uh, growing with the startup uh, if, if the business goes well. In terms of um, d difficulties, foreign entrepreneurs who want to work with Shenzhen is that I think a lot of them, when they've come over, they expect to find a suitable partner uh, within a week. And the problem is that for a startup, if you're building hardware, your factory is probably just as important as a co-founder. Or if you think about like personal relationships, it's probably as important as a life partner, like a wife or a husband. You probably want to give a bit more than a week to make a selection. This is why our program in Accelerator takes place entirely in Shenzhen for three and a half months so that we can train every team what to look for factories and uh, so that they can do basically their due diligence and find the, the most suitable partner for their business. Do you actually help the hardware entrepreneurs from overseas to be in China or you also have homegrown Chinese entrepreneurs within yes. Shenzhen? So out of the 50 startups we worked with so far, I think about 25 were from the US. And then in what is left, we have from some from Canada, from Europe and from Asia. And in Asia, probably out of 50, maybe six or seven are from China. Every time in every program, we get one or two Chinese companies out of 10 so far. And from next year, each program will have 15 teams. I've seen some interesting discussions on the Shenzhen phenomenon. And one interesting thing is that now they also have organized conferences happening in Shenzhen. And at the same yes. time, taking people around to see the factories. Are there like many important events i will i'll call them like the tech crunch disrupts equivalent in shenzhen that you know every entrepreneur must know must go so it's still quite new there's not that many like international grade events but it's true that shenzhen the factories and the entire ecosystem is trying to get more visibility and to help people understand what it's about so at Hacks, we get lots of visits from everywhere of people who want to understand what's going on. So we, get, we got visits from people from MIT, we got visits from the, the founder of LinkedIn, uh, we got visits from a group of entrepreneurs and, and investors from Japan. Everybody's trying to understand what is happening, how to work with Shenzhen, and in some cases also like how to build things straight up with Shenzhen. In addition, the city government is also understanding that there's something special there and that uh, they have a chance to maybe brand Shenzhen as a special place. Today, some people refer to Shenzhen as the Silicon Valley for hardware or the world capital of, of electronics. And the idea is that it doesn't mean that people in Shenzhen uh, are going to create the next Apple or the next Xiaomi or, or anything, but people from everywhere 
can go to Shenzhen and leverage that ecosystem, just like people from everywhere go to Silicon Valley to leverage the tech ecosystem. Or if you're in finance, you would go to London, you would go to New York. If you're in fashion, you go to Paris, you go to Milan. Basically, Shenzhen is a very, very special place today for hardware innovation. I think it can become a, a very interesting and attractive place for, for anyone uh, who wants to build hardware companies. So you have lived in Beijing, so you probably would, people call it Zhongguanchun uh, in Beijing as the Silicon Valley mm. for China. Mm. How does that compare to Shenzhen in terms of uh, like the uh, investment environment and the entrepreneurs? Yeah, so a lot of people call different places the Silicon Valley of uh, whatever. Of X, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but to understand what that means, you need to understand what are the, um, the components that make up uh, Silicon Valley. So you mentioned investors, you mentioned uh, things like... Um, uh, talent. There's other things like infrastructure, market access, and uh, there's a lot of elements to create Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, and I think, in a way, you cannot create the Silicon Valley anywhere, but you can create other forms. And what you have in Shenzhen is something that Silicon Valley doesn't have. Silicon Valley doesn't have that many factories and that much capability for manufacturing and prototyping. It's, it's very limited, Silicon Valley. It's also very expensive. I think this makes Shenzhen a special place. Well, Shenzhen is also a very special place because it hosts one of the big three companies, I call the back companies in China, which is Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And Tencent mm -hmm. is based in Shenzhen. So yes. the first question I probably ask is how do the bigger companies influence the Shenzhen ecosystem? Because they, there is a strong manufacturing mm. there. So you will see a lot of big companies would basically try to put very large manufacturing plants in Shenzhen. What's their influence against the startup companies in that kind of mm. environment? I mean, most of those companies are software companies. So they don't really, even though they have like some hardware projects, it's still quite limited for those three. Mm. Um, so I wouldn't say they really influence that much, aside from Tencent, who, which is based in Shenzhen, on the taps like a lot of talent from the region, and uh, definitely also redistributes talent uh, as people work for Tencent for a while and then go to start other things, or sometimes also end up being investors. In that sense, uh, Tencent benefits the ecosystem. They also are a problem for the ecosystem because they, they really catch a lot of people that could be doing other things and work for other companies and startups or start their own things. I would compare that to what happened in Finland when Nokia was strong. Almost all the engineers graduating, they, they were all dreaming about going to Nokia. And that actually impoverished innovation in Finland because they were all going to a giant company. And after Nokia had more trouble, then all those experienced uh, executives and engineers, they could start either their own thing or support new startups or invest in new startups. So that really benefited the ecosystem. In terms of who else benefits the Shenzhen ecosystem, I would say any hardware companies that is manufacturing things in Shenzhen, be it Apple or Amazon or Xiaomi, that actually benefits the ecosystem because it's all money that's being put in the, in the, in the region and uh, that helps uh, create jobs, that helps improve the know-how of factories, improve the, number of, improve the capability of the supply chain. That's why it's very hard to replicate such a place because there's, there's been so much money invested to this, uh, this infrastructure. Uh, if you think about just the number of devices that have been built in Shenzhen and the know-how and the, the amount of capital that have been invested, it would be really difficult to replicate that somewhere else. Foxconn, I presume, being the largest manufacturer for smartphones, is based mm -hmm. there as well. So they will also have a certain influence in terms of the manufacturing and the supply chain within that market. Sure. 
Absolutely. Yeah, Foxconn is, is a giant uh, supplier. I have to say, though, that Foxconn is not necessarily like the company to go to when you're a startup because they mostly work at volume. So the type of factories you would work with as a startup are factories specialized in smaller series and prototyping, but those factories can still scale to tens or hundreds of thousands of units. So that's actually what I call the sort of niche industries where people can actually do small-scale manufacturing, but it's on demand. It starts small, but what's really amazing with this ecosystem is that you can start small on scale really fast. You can scale up, you can scale down, it's very flexible, it's very affordable, and it's open for startups now. So is the Shenzhen phenomenon a little bit like a AWS for hardware? That means you actually yeah, that, scale you it say. on demand like that. Obviously, it's not the same as just uh, like pressing a button to start a, a server farm. I'd say it's getting close to that. That's really something quite new. Is there any like sort of an aggregation website to understand Shenzhen, like getting around Shenzhen, is the sort yeah. of manufacturing activity very diffuse across the city? The manufacturing activity is not in the city. A lot of it is actually toward Dongguan, uh, which is like an hour or two away from Shenzhen city itself. Uh, in Shenzhen, what you have access to is the electronics district, where you have basically several blocks of buildings full of components. It's a maker's dream, like for prototyping, it's fantastic. And all those shops are associated with factories. It can help you do your sourcing. So what's the name uh, of the electronics street? It's Huaxian Bay. It would be very difficult to get like a clear picture of the ecosystem. I've seen maps uh, locating the factories around Shenzhen. And you see thousands of them. So it's an entire ecosystem of manufacturing in that entire region. And given that it's very close to Hong Kong, is there any kind of spillover effects like bringing Hong Kong's financial capacity mm. into Shenzhen? Because, um, that's, because people talk about the Shenzhen-Hong Kong relationship. And Singapore is trying very hard to replicate that with Johor in Malaysia. I'm not too aware of what kind of connection is existing between the Hong Kong capital and uh, Shenzhen manufacturing ecosystem. I think a lot of the Shenzhen ecosystem was, was actually kickstarted by uh, people from Taiwan, including Foxconn, actually, if you, if you think of it. So I'm pretty sure there are a number of investments going on from Hong Kong to Shenzhen, but it's not necessarily obvious uh, how it moves, and it's not necessarily in the startup space. What do you see this ecosystem is going to evolve from your experience so far? Is it going to evolve towards being a sort of on-demand hardware building and you're going to see more and more hardware companies that will flourish from this ecosystem also one thing i do know mm. because from my own industry shenzhen is actually a connector point for logistics as well so shipping oh, yeah. out shenzhen is actually another core competitive advantage that i think a lot of people don't think about in sure. in that situation obviously with all the manufacturing going on the products have to go out and it's no surprise that shenzhen is a harbor and is very busy so in terms of where it's heading I think there's a good chance that Shenzhen will evolve to be more accommodating, say, smaller scale manufacturing with the hope of going into larger scale. It's unclear how competition among factories is going to shape that. It's also really difficult for factories to find customers and to differentiate. So I think the ones that become easier to work with for startups will have a very strong competitive advantage. I definitely wanted to pin your thoughts to talk about bad companies. What do you think of all three of them? I mean, from the time you see them when you were in Beijing before you mm. went around the world and just on the top, I will start with Baidu first. They started off as the search 
engine of China, but I think they evolved much more today with their properties, with maps. I would say Baidu is still at core a search company that has evolved into a number of uh, search verticals. It's uh, quite logical actually what they're doing because when you're doing search, most likely your I think your biggest revenue makers uh, for keyword search are things related to travel, to real estate, and cars. This type of on the like hotel booking. Those are the things that bring a lot of revenue for search engines. So it's quite logical Baidu expands into those. Now they also did a number of projects related to hardware. They're still quite niche. I think it's more like a trying things for the future. Alibaba has done a number of investments, very synergetic to what they were doing generally. It's also a very, very big company since the IPO. Tencent is really interesting also. They've done, like there was an article recently on Tech in Asia about the investments done by Tencent. Mm. And there's just so many of them. Just last year, like the number of times they, they wrote checks above $100 million is just staggering because the company is extremely profitable and they're expanding in all sorts of directions that are really, really interesting. They also have some international strategies which generally are quite, I'd say, soft in that sense that they don't try to take over operations on the to uh, cut down, they don't try to change something that's already working. I think the acquisition of, for example, the, the company called Riot Games that makes the game uh, League of Legends, that's very popular in the West, uh, is a good example. So they acquired the company and probably most of the users have no idea it's now part of a Chinese company. Tencent, of course, we know the most, they started off as a QQ messaging app yep. on the desktop, but they have basically also made a big switch to mobile messaging with WeChat, yep. which is Yes. One of the biggest phenomenon in Asia. Mm -hmm. Just on the day when I turn on WeChat in Singapore, I discover that not just I can connect to all my friends in China, but I also mm -hmm. could connect half the world in Asia. Mm -hmm. So that, that shocked me on the call that how fast they have grown, although under yeah. the radar. Yeah, so WeChat, for, I mean, for Tencent, it's very easy to push any type of entertainment or communication product because that's their expertise. Uh, and they have a huge user base that has been already using QQ, like, Everyone is using QQ pretty much in China. If you just promote something through that channel, it's very easy to get people to try new things. But I would say in terms of integration to smartphones, Tencent has done an amazing work with, uh, with WeChat and in terms of bringing other types of services within WeChat, such as like e-commerce or taxi booking. There's like so many things now integrated. It's really, really powerful. I've been telling everybody, you know, WhatsApp's strategy should just be cloning WeChat and nothing else. <laughs> well, I think more or less that's what I heard uh, Dave Morin, the founder of Pat, not exactly in those words, but he was very impressed by some of the Asian uh, messaging services. What I find interesting is also realizing that there's a bit of a, you know, in geopolitics, people sometimes talk about the clash of civilizations, looking at the world through not the lens of countries, but the lens of civilizations. So right. talking about Western civilization, Islamic civilization, Orthodox civilization, Buddhist civilization, sometimes they put Japanese civilization on the side. African, Latin American. I would say that today we sort of see uh, an evolution toward digital civilizations. And it's really interesting to look at that. Basically, you have the WeChat territory, you have the Line territory, you have the Kakao territory, you have the like Facebook or Snapchat or whatever territory. And the territories tend to be quite connected, a little bit like in the game of Go. If you have like your stones that are all over the place, it's not a strong connected territory. You cannot defend it very easily. Whereas when you have a territory that's very connected, then you can control it very strongly and expand it by capillarity around it. So I think it's really interesting to look at it this way. And what's also interesting is to see 
the exchanges of ideas and innovations from one territory and one service to another. In a way, you could call it like a digital Silk Road or some kind of a aspect like this. Things really interesting as well. After the bad companies, then I definitely wanted to talk about Xiaomi. Definitely, mm. the Shenzhen phenomenon is part of the Xiaomi's success. Of course, they have done much more than that. They innovate on the business model of using e-commerce to sell their handsets. They leverage on the principle of scarcity to do flash sales. I mean, people mm. talk about their strength in software, but their strength in business are mm. equivalently or if not just as important to why they are so successful. What mm. Do you think that Xiaomi will eventually become part of, I will call it the Bax company, maybe no more bets, but at an X there? I think they should already uh, because Xiaomi is said to be raising uh, new funding at a valuation above $40 billion. So that's already a pretty huge player. The fact is that Xiaomi is not competing directly with the other guys because it, it looks like a hardware company. However, the reason Xiaomi is selling its devices at fairly low margins is because their play is to be a platform play. The whole business of Xiaomi is to be a platform for content distribution on payments and all sorts of things. They will be competing soon, maybe with WeChat, maybe with, uh, with Alibaba on a number of aspects. Do you see them having a successful growth global success as compared to the other three companies? If you talk about Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, their, their footprint is still very strong in China. I think Xiaomi is trying yeah. to get past that and go out to the world very quickly by moving into mm -hmm. Southeast Asia and in India, getting their phones yes. out. I mean, in all these countries, the phones are sold out within a few seconds. So uh -huh. yeah, do, do you see them becoming more a global? Like, you know, remember the days where Japan, where Sony was a good global power? as compared to a lot of the other Japanese companies. Yes, absolutely. I think Xiaomi has a really good shot at becoming a global company. It's already very internationalizing. But uh, as you said, I think just like Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent, uh, they first uh, consolidated uh, their business in, in a very profitable and very large market of China. And then in terms of uh, internationalization or investment or expansion strategy, each company has to find its own approach. So it could be through investment like Alibaba and Tencent with some acquisitions here and there. And I think Xiaomi has a very appealing product for many, many markets. But depending on the market, there is more or less constraints, more or less appeal. Uh, and I think they're very suitable for a lot of the middle class users in many emerging markets. Uh, so they're going to India. There's a very good chance that the next stop will be Indonesia. Then they might go to places like Russia or Brazil, where it's more distant, but where the, there's also a large market with a large middle class. And then they might consider Western Europe, US, where there might be uh, more constraints on business, uh, more competition. But yeah, I think they have a, a very good value proposition for all those markets. And uh, I mean, just as a personal note, I had several friends from uh, like Europe or Japan or US that asked me to buy Xiaomi devices for them so that they could use it in their home market. I think the qu central question is whether they're going to go with the forked Android, which is basically they take the open Android and they mutate it for Chinese market. Eventually, they a very strong software company compared to all the other oh, yeah. Android OEMs. In that sense, you think that their evolution would also lead them towards building an operating system that is out from Asia, maybe just built from the remnants of Android operating system itself. Perfect. I don't know how much like they want to branch out of the basic Android, but it's true that in terms of hardware, they have really like good quality hardware, but that's not necessarily how they differentiate. They differentiate, as you said, with software. That's a really key element of, uh, of what they do. They updates very frequently and they, they distribute uh, new versions of their OS. It's really a key element. Of course, Xiaomi has the 
guy who was formerly the head of Android for China, and he hired his boss Hugo Barras, who is yes. the head of products for Google Android. So I think that there is some advantage that they can look at. But coming back, there's still the rest of them. There is Shanta, Qihu, and mm-hmm. Singna, which known for Weibo, which is the equivalent of Twitter. But I heard that traffic is not doing very well, and Sohu, which is also a little bit of search base. Yes. So where do you see these? Um, I call them the second tier after the bad company. I'd say for some like Shanta, which is mostly a game company, it's all about the content they can offer. In some cases, the bit of the internationalization strategy, but it can be quite difficult in gaming because the it's really related to local culture and local operations. Chihu is interesting because they already have vended internationally quite a bit in terms of usage. Sina and Sohu are probably resolutely local, uh, but there's actually a, a few other companies, like there's even one called Cheetah Mobile that most people don't talk about, but is, is a, already a market-listed company for several billion dollars. And the core of their offering is an app to clean your phone. And by doing that, they also get a view of all the apps you have in your phone. So they have a, probably just as good an understanding of what's on your phone as Google or Apple, as operators of the App Store, would have. That allows them to actually provide a, an app for free and then make money based on data and based on uh, like suggesting app installations. So this is really innovative approach. and. Um, most people never heard of it. So there's really a lot of uh, more new companies or even Momo, like a dating app, is also, I think, either IPO or about to. It's really quite impressive how fast those companies are growing. The taxi companies also are getting like crazy high valuations right yes. now in a record time again. So what about the older players like Lenovo and, and Zeti? How are they now evolving? Um, so I haven't really looked recently at what they were doing, but for many of them, the business is still like in systems and infrastructure. Oh, there's still a need for that. But in terms of consumer devices, it's difficult, you know, because there's new entrants and those companies have a huge legacy in terms of technology, in terms of brand image. They don't necessarily have very differentiating product. It's probably quite difficult. I hear you talking about the Clash of Civilizations by Samuel Huntington. So you mm. also have an a interesting presentation based on Guns, Gems and Steel, which was, uh, I forgot the author's name. You try to take that conversation to explain the startups in US versus startup in the rest of the world. So yeah. you want to talk a little bit about that and it's also about what you talk about digital natives evolving yes. from clones yes. to their own uh, niche and their own competitive advantage. For those who are not familiar with the book, so Guns, Germs and Steel is a book by Jared Diamond, who's, you could say, kind of a mix between sociologist, anthropologist and the historian, who was looking at the evolution of the world and the success of different civilizations from the lens of what they had access to in their environment. In particular, Guns, Germs and Steel uh, played, according to him, a very strong role in uh, shaping the world today, as well as access to things like uh, crops or large uh, uh, farm uh, animals. So that gave advantage to some civilizations, thanks to climate and geography and animals and plants, so that they could basically spend less time getting food and more time doing other things, uh, such as developing technology, developing weapons. Basically, all this to explain that there's no particular superiority of like the Caucasian man, which is basically one uh, particular human group that expanded very aggressively around the world. Not that it's more innovative or more intelligent, it's just that it had access to better resources that could free a lot of labor to do creative things. I look at it in a similar way uh, when I look at the startup ecosystems, like I'm from France and people often ask, oh, so how come you don't have a Google or a Facebook in Europe? I say, well, it's very simple. So there's many reasons, but one of the reasons is that there's the, the US market compared to any domestic European market is like 
five, ten times bigger, sometimes more. So even if you could create a comparable technology based on the domestic market, then it wouldn't grow as big. It's just as simple as that. So that's one example. Then access to resources such as capital and talent, you could say could compare also to things like farm animals and crops. Uh, having a good IT infrastructure, obviously the US created that first IT infrastructure, so they had access to it first. So they had a very strong head start. But now that things are kind of normalizing, that you see basically almost U.S. falling behind in terms of internet speed compared to places like Japan, Korea, Hong Kong, Singapore, but also China. China is catching up really fast with internet speed and engineering talent. And basically, it's to show that ecosystems play a very large role in fostering innovation and that as ecosystems in other places are evolving and getting better, it will give opportunities to companies to grow much bigger and much faster. And we already see that in Japan. And recently, I think this year in, in uh, India, there were a number of really big rounds of funding uh, in e-commerce or transportation apps and uh, a number of other categories that show that India is also, also picking up. So that's one aspect. The other aspect of uh, what I like to discuss and uh, that's actually more related to uh, this evolutionary approach of, uh, of innovation is that Basically, ideas don't have a nationality. Ideas are everywhere. Uh, and you could say that muses that have a, basically the, the symbol of ideas are visiting people everywhere in the world. The difference is that if you, just like if you plant a seed on very dry land, maybe you get nothing. If you plant a seed in a very uh, fertile ground, then you get good results. And then in some cases, if you take a species from one place to another with different conditions of climate and nutrition, they will evolve to become something different. And I would say the same happens with ideas on the, in the digital space. So you mentioned Tencent. Tencent started as a kind of local adaptation of ICQ with the, its QQ messaging service. But then it evolved to be a company doing online games with microtransactions that was almost unheard of in the West. That was only popular in Korea at the time. And then thanks to the market access of China, they grew really large. They used their expertise in microtransaction and in communication to create WeChat which was probably inspired by a number of messaging apps that were out there, including WhatsApp. But then now it evolved to be actually much more advanced than what you see on WhatsApp. So this aspect of cross-pollination on evolution on environmental factors show that you can find innovation everywhere and you can get amazing results if you have the suitable environment. But then I want to say devil's advocate. In your example of Europe versus the US, yes, US is the largest market. It has a very uniform market common currency. And you can make the same argument for China and mm -hmm. India to a certain extent, even though different, they are different provinces with different Indian dialects. But if you look at, say, a much more fragmented market like Southeast Asia, you need to have the competitive advantage of language. If you look at the Northeast Asia as a whole, you have Japan, Korea. They're very siloed within their language, very siloed yes. within their culture, and they're more nationalistic. Whereas in Southeast Asia, people are more open to the Facebooks or the Twitters out there and making yes. homegrown products extremely difficult to grow. Wouldn't that has a distributed effect that the, the thesis for startups having very, that can grow very big has to have very strong common market access and possibly it could only be limited to the BRIC nations, which is the Brazil, the Russia, the India, Indonesia, and China. I would say just like Hollywood movies, uh, benefit from, uh, but because they can sell in the US and make a lot of money in the US, uh, they, can, they can justify to invest a lot more money in the movie mm. itself. So having much more experienced actors, uh, much better visual effects, much, much better post-production, uh, better stories, better writers. 
so there's more money invested. So if you compare the quality of what comes out of Hollywood versus the quality of what comes out of a country that would have like, I don't know, one or two or five million people, they have more volume, they have more quality, they have stronger stories, stronger characters, stronger everything. Mm. So obviously, if you don't protect any local market, they're going to be dominated by uh, international imports. Mm unless they can find something that will resonate with the local culture. For technology companies, the challenge, as you said, is that many startups might not be viable in a domestic market or might not be very viable or might not be able to compete against an international player. Uh, like, let's say you do a taxi app in a country where there's like a million people. Maybe you can be barely profitable, but you'll never go very big. And you'll never have enough profit to basically expand on investors unless you tell them this was a test market, we're going to go bigger, by going to other markets, they're never going to give you money just to, to stay domestic. So uh, I think, though, that there's some advantages is that uh, most U.S. companies, they start in U.S. and it takes them a while to actually being strong enough before expanding internationally. And when they expand overseas, they have to be quite selective. They cannot do everything at once. There's very few companies that actually went overseas successfully, especially companies that require a lot like local operations. Very few of them expanded successfully before they reached a very large size. For a local nimble startup, that's an opportunity to build a much more well-adapted local service and then possibly expand it to geographies that have comparable ecosystems. So I think there's opportunities this way. But as you say, in Southeast Asia, the challenge is uh, market size, um, infrastructure, uh, revenue, potential revenue, because the GDP per capita is, uh, is much lower than in the US. But there, there are sizable markets, like Indonesia is a sizable market. Singapore, for some services, like hyper-local services, such as like food delivery and things like that, could be a good start. Uh, taxi apps, uh, there's also like a number of opportunities, probably in, in um, certain markets. Mm. But yeah, like expanding internationally, uh, when markets are not homogenous, is is tricky. That's right. I mean, the, we are actually having that phenomenon of something like a Grab Taxi raising two hundred fifty million for Southeast Asia. So the taxi yep. apps have definitely changed the market dynamics. And Tokopedia, which is so called the Alibaba of Indonesia, has just raised mm. hundred million. So there are these new forces that will come into Southeast Asia. I mean, this will be very interesting because we have already seen that yep. happening in China a couple of years ago and it's beginning to happen in India plus Southeast Asia. And I'd like to quote actually Jack Ma on uh, also another advantage that local entrepreneurs have is that uh, when asked about uh, why eBay uh, didn't manage to beat uh, Alibaba even though eBay had, was a very large company and had a lot of resources, he said that eBay was trying to land jet fighters into rice paddies because the Chinese infrastructure was very different from the US infrastructure and eBay was trying to use pretty much the same way from back home in China and that just didn't work. Alibaba and Taobao changed the business model, they changed the way to recruit users, they allowed merchants and sellers to actually communicate directly whereas eBay generally doesn't want you to do that because they don't want you to bypass them because their business model is based on commissions. Because Taobao changed the business model, they didn't actually care. But uh, they, they would encourage you to communicate with sellers. All those elements mean that local entrepreneurs actually do have a number of advantages for building, uh, for building services. So do you see that US would be good for zero to one companies, as what Peter Thiel would say, and the rest of the world would be a one to hundred companies. Because uh, building sorry, the one to repeat? so so you know the concept of zero to one from Peter Thiel, right? Yes. So to build the zero yes. to one is actually very difficult. But once you have that, you have what is called monopoly advantage. I... But once the zero to one model is proved, the rest of the world catches on it to build the one to hundred, which is actually very small. 
because it becomes very competitive and it's copied everywhere, it's cloned everywhere. Do you mm -hmm. see the zero to one phenomenon happening sometime soon for China? Well, already, like uh, there's already services that are very successful in China that I haven't heard of like anywhere else. I mentioned to you the, like, the mobile cleaning app done by Cheetah right. Mobile. You could say Chihu is another example. So th there is local innovation. There are uh, evolutions of like international or global ideas. And as you said, actually, as entrepreneurship is developing, even a company that really was dominant uh, might fragment. Like you could, like if you look at um, Craigslist, was a dominant player in a online classified, and then later, as the market grew many of those subcategories became full-fledged businesses. Like Airbnb was, a, you could say, a subcategory of Craigslist. That's right. There is an actual so, slide on that, actually, that shows you that a lot of eBay was also a subset of Craigslist and all the other companies are subsets of, Craig, of yep. Craigslist. So, and it's quite normal. Like As the market grows, then some market segments uh, can become viable to build really large businesses and might end up actually focusing on the much more profitable market segment than the, the general purpose service. We are almost closing on, but definitely I will be getting you to come back and have a longer conversation on some of these topics again. So Ben, sure. would you tell our audience how we can find you on Twitter and any links you want to plug? Sure. So uh, on, on Twitter, I'm Benjamin Jov. I'm currently with Accelerator, so you can email me at benjamin at accelerator.com. You can find online. Otherwise, I have a number of uh, presentations on uh, my consulting company account on slideshare.net or slideshare.com slash plus number eight star, plus eight star. And uh, as well as under the Accelerator account for those of you interested in the hardware. You can definitely find me at bleongcw and bernardleong.com. And if you want to follow us at Analyze Asia uh, with an S and Analyze.Asia. And you should drop into our iTunes, our Stitcher or SoundCloud to give us a review. And of course, feedback would be great. So Ben... Once again, thank you for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you soon. Pleasure. Talk soon.